to be the people that you call us to be. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Craig. Thanks. Well, good morning, everyone. Bit of enthusiasm and excitement on a cold winter's morning. It's all good, eh? Got to get your blood pumping. Um, this is the first time I've been across here on a Sunday. Uh, no, second time. But first time I'm speaking since I've been in the role, which is just coming up three years. So it's great to be here. I love this part of the country. It's not too shabby, really, is it? Um, it's been one of, those, one of those weeks where I started in Wanaka on Sunday night, came through Alex. I live in Mosgiel, that's where I'm based was in Invercargill yesterday and came up to, to Alex last night. So um, I'm, I'm almost ready for my own bed, but, um, but it's great to be here with you today. I want to start with uh, a little bit of fun and see how you react to these. Is it a six or is it a nine? Who, who immediately goes to six? Who goes to nine? Okay, there's no right or wrong answer, just checking. What about that one? Have you got it? <laughs> Depending on where you're standing or sitting, how do you react? What about that one? How many animals are in that picture? Who's got three? Who's got four, five, six, seven? If you've got seven, you're doing really well. <laughs> There's an elephant. There's a horse, a dog, a cat, a mouse, and a monkey. Got them? Okay, are there three logs or are there four? Who's got three? Who's got four? Oh, more have got four? Okay, again, no right or answer. You've seen this, is one, this one's been around for a while. Who immediately can see a young woman? Who can see an older woman? Who can see both now that you know there's both? <laughs> okay. It's deep. No, it's not. <laughs> I quite, this is my favourite. Depending on where you stand, it might look a little different. And then there's the infamous story, and this is not a great photo, I apologise. The infamous story of was it white and gold dress, a blue and black dress, or something else? It's an ugly dress. <laughs> The point being that wherever we stand, the way we look at different things in life, um, where, where we are positioned, our upbringing, our, our culture, we're going to see things a little bit differently. Even today, when you're looking this way, you see one thing, but if you turn around, you're going to see something else. Nothing's changed. The building is still the same. The equipment is still the same. The people are still the same. You've just changed position. It's perspective, right? What does it actually mean? Well, at its basic, perspective is a particular attitude towards or a way of regarding something. It's a point of view. So with all of that in mind, I want us to turn to Acts chapter 9. And I think Sonia, I'm not even sure where Sonia is. Sonia. <laughs> Sonia. Sonia's going to read this just so it's another voice. Um, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 22 and 28. This is not on the screen, by the way, so just listen. Okay, so meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Paul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hand on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see me again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So Saul stayed with them, and he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Thanks, Sonia. It's quite a story, isn't it? In a nutshell, we have this murderous, seething, really angry man who is intent on destruction. And here he is that is literally stopped in his tracks by a bright light and this loud voice. At the bookend of this of this passage, of this story, we have an individual who is utterly transformed in every way, in his attitude, in his behavior, in his understanding, in his perspective. So I want to look at this passage just a little bit more closely with two key points. The first being this, that a new perspective can be incredibly uncomfortable, chaotic, and costly. See, Saul was known as a man of power, of prestige, of position, of connection. He was a Jew, but he moved really easily within the Roman world. He had the ear and he had the mandate of the high priest, but this man was intent on damage, on destruction, particularly of believers. 
In that opening verse of the chapter, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and eager to kill the Lord's followers. We're left in no doubt. Some translations use the phrase murderous threats. There is no doubt as to his conviction here. So if anything is going to deter Saul from this very specific course of action that he is on, it's going to need to be significant. So that's what God does. Can you picture for a moment the scene, perhaps a beautiful sunny day? Journey is going according to plan. And then out of the blue, all of a sudden there is this blinding light, and I mean blinding light, this loud voice that brings Saul and his companions up short and takes Saul literally to his knees. And the voice makes it very, very clear who this is. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, not only is Saul confronted by Jesus' voice, he is physically confronted. He loses his sight immediately. He loses a level of control that he has had without question. And he suddenly finds himself at the mercy of others, reliant on his companions. For the next three days, he's not only blind, but he stops eating and drinking. He's losing his health and his strength in the process. It is often recognized, isn't it, that a period of fasting goes hand in hand with a period or a season of repentance, of renewal, of change. So we could assume that this three-day period of no food and no drink for Saul was actually a required key factor in his complete transformation. He has been taken to breaking point in order that the old is completely gone. But by God's grace, Saul is not left in this place of brokenness. He does ultimately regain his sight and his strength and his health. If you read the bit that we didn't read out loud from verse 23 on, we also see that because of the transformation that Saul goes through, due to his new understanding of and as a believer, he becomes a target for those that he had colluded with directly and indirectly before. People, Jews, that he likely called friends are now intent on hunting him down, on killing him, not just once, but on multiple occasions. And in fact, this actually becomes a significant part of Saul, who later becomes Paul, his story. Verse 16 of this passage where it says, the suffering for Christ. Jesus mentions this. See, oh, how the tables have turned. Saul escapes his attackers. But then through all this, he is met with constant suspicion from the believers who were struggling to understand this really dramatic change of Saul. See, they knew the stories. They knew what he was capable of. And suddenly he's on their doorstep saying, I'm different. I'm on your side. Saying I'm changed is not enough often. It's not enough for those that you have been hunting down. See, what proof was there really to confirm such a change? Who wouldn't be suspicious? I would. So a new perspective for Saul, a new point of view, was not a walk in the park. It was tough. It was costly. He is brought literally to his knees and loses in one fell swoop his plan, his prestige, his power, 
his sight and his health. And then he's persecuted. He is questioned, and he finds himself at the very center of suspicion. But in verse 15, God is very clear and very firm when he's talking to Ananias, and we'll come back to this again. This is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, to the kings and to the people of Israel. Saul is transformed. Saul is restored. But he has this time a much more positive and new intent. His preaching becomes powerful. His leadership grows. He encourages, he supports, and he teaches. This transformation is not easy. But to ease some of that toughness, God provides others. He provides support to achieve it. And that is point two. A new perspective usually involves others wrapping around in support and partnership. See, with just a moment, that angry man that was finds himself at the mercy and the assistance of others. And then God speaks to this believer named Ananias, as we've read, and asks him to help. Ananias is the very sort of person that Saul has been intent on destroying. And yet God says, I have made myself known to Saul now, Ananias, you go and help him. You, Ananias, be my instrument to restore his sight and his health. Through you, Ananias, I'm going to be made known to Saul even further. Well, put yourself in Ananias' shoes for a minute. But pardon, Lord? Um, this is the man that we've all heard about. This is the man that we all actively avoid. But in spite of his own doubts and his, hum his human doubts and his questions, Ananias knows that there's no point in resisting the Lord. So he obeys and he goes to Saul. See, Ananias had to be willing to give up something of himself to allow God to move in and through him. But can you imagine knocking on the door where your known adversary is waiting and reaching out in obedience, Ananias acknowledges that Saul is now a disciple of Christ. Brother Saul, he says. He confirms to Saul that it was indeed Jesus who he met on the road. And the Lord uses, his, uses Ananias to support and to restore Saul into this new life, this new perspective, this new way. So Saul finds himself amongst believers able to care for him, encourage him, teach him, protect him, advocate for him as he takes those initial and then subsequent steps into this life. People, partnership and support. See, a new perspective is really achieved and done alone. I think all of this is true for us today as well. Whether we need to consider a new attitude or a new point of view for ourselves as followers of Jesus, or whether we need to seek to help others into one. It can be uncomfortable, chaotic, costly, perhaps dramatic, or slow and steady. Oh, excuse me. Our perspectives of others are often based, though, on our own our attitudes and our behaviours, our culture, what is perhaps taught to us, or the things that we are surrounding ourselves with every day. So a lot of our, our own perspective comes from a place of not knowing any different. 
Maybe it comes from a sense of, of fear or threat. Or perhaps we just simply don't stop to consider an alternative. So we assume. We don't bother to ask questions and nor do we understand the reasons for a comment or an action by someone else. Little story. Many moons ago, I worked in uh, the whole scientific world. And amongst our team was a man who came from a country uh, that had very specific ideology and expectations for its people. Uh, prior to coming to New Zealand, he'd been to a third country and done his PhD, which had its own perspectives on life, shall we say. But this man was incredibly intelligent, highly, highly capable man. And as was often customary on a Monday morning, we'd sit around the smoko table, morning having morning tea, and we'd discuss what had happened at the weekend. And the team knew about my Christian faith uh, and my involvement in church. And on this particular day, as they often asked, they, they said, what happened yesterday, Rachel? And so I shared something of what had happened in the service at church the, the day before. And that service had been a particularly lively one for, there was some particular reason, I can't remember why, been tons of music. The kids were fully involved. There was lots of dance. And um, if I recall correctly, there was even a lolly scramble, something you have to be very careful about these days with the joys of health and safety and something about taking an eye out as you throw a lolly. Um, but I remember it quite, I'm sure it, there was one that day. And across the table, I could see this man looking increasingly concerned and perplexed. And eventually he stopped me mid-sentence and he said, no. He said, no, that is just not possible. And I said to him, what do you mean? What, why, what do you think church is like? And he stated, this is almost verbatim, he stated this, church is an old stone, large, cold building. It has hard, wooden, straight back, no cushion benches. It is boring, and the man, always a man, at the front is severe and spends the time telling you what you have done wrong. And I asked what he thought about what I'd just de described in my church the day before. And I said, it's not actually uncommon. This was relatively a, you know, a normal thing. And again, he had this long pause, and then he said, and I quote, that is not church, that's a party. Fascinating, eh? Perspective. Perspective gained through the backstory influences of approach to life, including our perspective and our understanding of faith. See, by what this man had read, been told, watched probably on television from afar, and maybe he'd gone into a building once in a country uh, not his own and not in New Zealand. This had shaped his attitude. And I determined at that point that my behaviour and my attitude had very clearly share and show him who Jesus was and is. He never did accept the invitation to come to a service, but he did soften significantly in the time I worked with him. So you only have to listen to, watch, go online and read news to hear plenty of negative comment, don't we, about Christians and their attitudes. We know it can be misplaced interpretation, or it might be because a few people have spoken or acted without consideration, without wisdom, they're focused on their own interests, not that of the whole. 
and it does tar everyone. We also know that people watch us as individuals and see a difference in how we respond and do life. What is it that comes out of our mouths or how do we react and behave? So do we have a different perspective or are we so relevant and melded into society that no one can tell that there's actually anything different about us? I recall chatting with a young Christian quite some time back, and this has happened on more than one occasion. And this man, young man had no problem with profanity as he talked with me. And I cringed because it got to the point where I was uncomfortable. And I remember thinking, what do other people think about this? See, what was it from him that was exampling a different way? And the way he talked, absolutely nothing. It was unnecessary and it was, in fact, rather unhelpful. And then a couple of years ago, I was in a building with a tradesman who was quoting on some work that needed to be done. And he asked about the property and I explained to him that the church that had met there had been disestablished um, just prior. And it led to quite a lengthy conversation about the perception of churches and the state of New Zealand society. And he made a comment along the lines of, it is such a shame to see churches close. We need them. The churches are the ones who guide the moral state of our society. And it was fascinating to hear this young man, late 20s, early 30s, a young father. He had a Sunday school background, but he was not a follower of Jesus. To very clearly note the place of Christians and churches in New Zealand society. To him, church was a necessity for the balanced and improved state of our nation. But I couldn't help wonder if this moral state that this young guy perceived was the place of the church was in fact what most people saw and see from the church, including those that call church their family. John Stott is a name that you might know. Renowned theologian, author, preacher. He's now with Jesus. But he once said this. God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. And when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. But the real question to ask is, where is the salt? It's quite a powerful quote, isn't it? See, perhaps the, the, the salt is the role that we as believers have in how we react, speak, interact, that will shape our own and others' perspectives of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be ready and open to alter the way we view things and perhaps support the changes that are needed in other people even if it's just being willing for a conversation as a start. Because a new view and a new understanding will often come from a willingness or a necessity to change our lens. Some of these changes don't happen immediately. In Saul's case, the initial transformation was dramatic. It was because Jesus met Saul where he was at, angry, rough, 
focused, intentional on his cause. That hard and fast, in-your-face thing was probably what was needed at the time. But I suspect and we know that that longer-term transformation took quite a lot of time and that required that journey with other people. See, God is not about just what happens today. God has this long perspective, what happens all the way down the track. That transformation started quickly for Saul. But look at also what it meant for other people. That persecution that Saul had been intent on ceased for a bunch of believers, at least at that time. But it required people like Ananias and other believers to step beyond their own context and what they thought in order for Saul's transformation to actually be complete. See, for some of us, that transformation may well be dramatic. But more often than not, it's going to be a long process. It will require time, relationship, understanding of context and culture, open ears, open eyes, and open minds. But what might it mean for us today? Well, maybe it means getting alongside people in our local neighbourhood, knocking on the door door of your neighbour, growing a joint understanding of each other's lives. Whether you agree with them or not, you can still connect. I got told once very clearly to my face, nope, I cannot go and hang out in that same space of that other person because I don't agree with their life choices. You don't have to agree with them, but you can have a cup of tea. Maybe it means that you can advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. To stand for integrity and amid the challenges of things like corruption and greed and extortion and persecution, words we don't often use here in New Zealand, but that happens. Maybe it means journeying alongside those who are seeking to be freed from the consequences of unhealthy decisions, whether they are of their own making or at the hands of somebody else. Maybe it means that like Ananias, we are the instrument that God uses to effect transformation for another person. And maybe that's the last person that you would think of. See, Saul's transformation was just incredible. God had a very clear plan in mind when he confronted Saul on the road to Damascus that day. It was undeniable. And likewise, God has a plan for each of us, whether it is at a personal level, at a church level, corporate level, community level, national level. And here's the great thing. Jesus can and will meet us wherever we are at. Wherever others are at, whatever our context, our frame of mind, our circumstances. See, that's the wonderful gift and grace of Jesus Christ. Because of who he is, his death and his resurrection, he counted the cost on our behalf. We've not had to earn that gift of grace. And it's through Christ that our perspective is changed and we are different. So are we willing to see beyond our own perspective to understand somebody else's? Are we willing to understand and trust God's perspective, ultimately surrendering to him, 
letting him unfold his plan and not limiting him to our plans? Are we willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of ourselves and others, accepting that there is a potential cost in doing so, but recognising that the reward will be phenomenal among the poor, among the proud, among the persecuted, and among the privileged. Christ is coming to make all things new. In the private house, in the public place, in the wedding feast, and in the judgment hall, Christ is coming to make all things new. With a gentle touch, with an angry word, with a clear conscience, and with burning love, Christ is coming to make all things new. That the kingdom might come, that the world might believe, that the powerful might stumble, and that the hidden might be seen. Christ is coming to make all things new. Within us, without us, behind us, and before us, in this place, and in every place, for this time and for all time, Christ is coming to make all things new. Amen.